For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Last week we started this sublime letter to the Romans written by the Apostle Paul. And in his introduction, he talked again and again about this thing that he calls the gospel or the good news. And this, he says, is the most important thing in his life, really his life purpose. And he told this group of Christians in the city of Rome, we saw verse 15, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, the good news. He wants to tell them. He wants to flesh out what he calls the gospel or the good news. And he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And last week we talked about what exactly does he mean by this good news. I'm just going to run through this very quickly. This is kind of Christianity in a nutshell. Um, there's a God who's really there. He's always been there and he created everything that exists. Two, his original creation was perfect and he created humans to inhabit this perfect world and to live in perfect relationship with him and each other. He warned those first humans that sin, which is disobedience to God, which is throwing off God's leadership, that sin would bring death to us and to the world that he created. And we turned away from God and broke everything. Our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, even the created order lies significantly broken. And it's interesting because you look out at the created world and on the one hand you can see there's something there. You can see the beauty, the majesty, the awesomeness, how it reflects God. But you can also see that it's broken. And it's not so broken that you can't see some of its original design. Um, and so you can see both. So we see evidence for both a creator God who made the world a certain way, and yet we also see evidence that something has gone horribly wrong. And God says, instead of just leaving us to face the consequences, he announced his plan to send a promised one. And we traced many of those prophecies last week. Prophecies that culminated... In Jesus Christ, the culmination of the promises and predictions of the Old Testament. Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have all lived. He died on the cross, the death that we all deserved. And so while sin brings death, Jesus, who never sinned, who never did wrong, died so that we might live. And, and you, there's some good news and there's some bad news here in what we're looking at. On the one hand, the bad news is that all people are cut off from God, headed toward death and eternal separation from him. But the good news is that you can be forgiven and receive what Paul calls here the righteousness of God. And you can receive eternal life. The righteous shall live by faith, he says. This isn't something earned by works, but re received by faith. It's, it's by placing our trust in Jesus Christ for his death to pay for my sins. And so <clears throat> we have the, the bad news and we have the good news. And, you know, the... Um, Sometimes you have to really appreciate the bad news before you can appreciate the good news. You know, imagine you're sitting in the doctor's office and you're reading one of the magazines they have, one of the health journals, and it talks about how a new, low-cost, um, you know, 100% effective cure for pancreatic cancer has been discovered and is approved for mass market usage. Well, you'd be like, that's pretty interesting. But imagine how your perspective would change if you go into that doctor's office and he says, I got to be honest with you, you have pancreatic cancer. All of a sudden, that good news just seems a whole lot better when you realize I have the cancer that it cures. I have the disease that it can fix. And it is the antidote. And in the book of Romans, you know, if somebody ever asks you, do you want to hear, I got good news and bad news, which one do you want to hear first? I usually say the bad news. Well, in the book of Romans, 
That's, that's the order Paul's going to go in. After this brief introduction about the good news, he spends two whole chapters, from the middle of one to almost the end of chapter three, talking about the bad news, talking about the cancer, the death, the guilt that we all have, because it's almost like he's a lawyer arguing his case, that we are guilty, the entire human race. Everybody needs this cure. Everybody has the cancer. And he argues that so powerfully. And then the rest of the book of Romans will appreciate the, the final 13 or so chapters where he rolls out the good news. And the good news and all of its implications and all of its facets. And so we see in Romans 1, the beginning of, of several, of about 67 verses actually, where he's really getting into the bad news. We saw last week in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith or from start to finish by faith. As it is written, the righteous one shall live by faith. So I already said all that, and I said that, good. And notice in verse 18, in 17 he says the gospel, in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. So we've got this good news, we've got the righteousness of God, it's available to all. But then in verse 18 he says, now I'm going to talk about the wrath of God being revealed. The wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So on the one hand, you have the, the righteousness of God being granted to the one that receives Jesus by faith. But here it talks about the anger of God, the wrath of God directed toward those who by their works commit unrighteousness. That when God looks at Jesus Christ, what he sees the rest of humanity doing is, is very different. John Stott says the wrath of God is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil. His settled refusal to compromise with it. God is not going to look the other way and cover up evil. He's not some corrupt judge or corrupt police officer. God is also not just flying off the handle at evil. No, but God, God hates evil. And he refuses to compromise with it. And it says that the wages of sin is death later in Romans. That is the, the, the death penalty for, for sin. And so God's, God's judgment rests on anyone that has not received Christ's forgiveness. And that's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who, Paul says, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It's pretty, a pretty interesting phrase. It says that humanity is constantly engaged in suppressing what he calls the truth. The truth that we know that God is there, that we, that we know that God is calling out to us, that we know that we've, we've fallen short of his standard. Suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, you know, a visual image, I'm a visual thinker. You can imagine humanity, here we are, right? And we have the truth. And our reaction to the truth is consistently, no thank you. <laughs> We're like, no. And then the truth gets a little closer, and we're like, no. <laughs> and so when God looks down at the human race, on the one hand, he's left evidence. He's left clues of himself. He's made himself clear. He's made the truth known, at least enough of it, to hold everybody accountable, everybody responsible. But when God looks at the human race, he sees people that look like this, and like this, and like this, and like this, <laughs> and like this. This is the human race. This is our response to God. The God who loves us is the God that we don't want to hear from for some reason. That's what Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says. 
you know, if the truth were like a giant beach ball, we would constantly be trying to press it down under the water. But if you've ever tried to press a beach ball under the water, you know you can only hold it there for so long. Eventually that thing is going to come popping back up. And God is constantly, because he loves us, coming after us, convicting us by his spirit with his truth. He's reaching out to you. Maybe this is why you're here tonight, because God is reaching out to you with his truth. There's something he wants you to hear. And how, how does this work? Paul says, well, they suppress the truth because that which is known about God is evident within them. Yes, we know. We can look. He's revealed that inside of us. We can't get away from this. We look into our minds and our hearts and we know that God is there because God made it evident to them, not something we came up with on our own, but something that God has done, something that God has shown us. He says, this is nothing new since the creation of the world. God's invisible attributes, like his eternal power, like his divine nature, have been clearly seen. Invisible attributes clearly seen. We know that God is there. We know that God is eternal. We know that God is powerful. We know something about the divine nature because we humans are made in God's image. We're, capable, we're, we're personal beings capable of relationships, capable of choice, capable of thought, appreciating beauty conscious of our own existence and God has made that known to you and it says it has actually been clearly seen they're being they're understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse and so in this passage he says we're suppressing the truth because it's evident within us because God made it evident to us and it's been clearly seen since creation and it's understood through what has been made so that we are without excuse None of us can stand before God and say, well, God, not enough information. God says, no, Romans 1. And for those of you here tonight, he's going to say, what about that night you went to CT and you studied Romans 1 and you got even more light shown, shown into your life? This is what the difference is between general revelation and special revelation. You know, God has revealed himself in very specific ways through his, his word. And we've got reasons we don't have time to go into why we, we think the Bible is a special collection of writings inspired by God. But there's also things that God has revealed to everyone and that are, are known to all without ever looking inside of a Bible. And that we look in the Bible and it confirms what we see all around us and what we see inside of us as well. And that is general revelation. You know, it's not like this. It's not like you look at the sky and all of a sudden the clouds are forming a cross or they're forming the word God. He says, I love you. <laughs> no, it's, it's not like that. Not like that at all. Um, we're going to take a look at actually several lines of evidence. Tonight, we're going to look at what I think is, ooh, what a lot of people think is the best. The best line of evidence from the world of science. And uh, this information we're going to be looking at tonight is, is information that's really only been available in the last couple of decades, you know. Um, some people thought is the more scientific knowledge we get, the more it will fill in all the gaps and it will rule out even the possible existence of God. Not true. As in areas like this one, the more knowledge we get, the gap is getting so huge that it's becoming overwhelming. And perhaps you'll agree with me by the time we're done tonight. Well, I'm going to make an argument, what is known as the fine-tuning of the universe. Let's think about this a little bit. What is this? This is... 
something that's affirmed by agnostic and atheistic physicists. And I'm going to give you a bunch of quotes tonight from a lot of people who are like Oxford and Cambridge and Stanford and a lot of other prestigious universities. And I'm not going to quote a thing. Not only am I going to avoid quoting Christians tonight, I'm not even going to quote a single theist. Agnostics and atheists like Richard Dawkins from Oxford. He says, physicists have calculated that if the laws and constant of physics had been even slightly different, the universe would have developed in such a way that life would have been impossible. Different physicists put it different ways, but the conclusion is always much the same. There are certain constants in various disciplines, especially of cosmology and physics, that these constants simply need to be calculated by observation. We can't predict them through mathematical values. And, and these constants are the sorts of things, they have to be just the right number, just, just exactly the way that they are. Otherwise, it would, it would produce a universe where life is impossible. John Barrow, Cambridge, he says, at first one might imagine that a change in the value of a constant would simply shift the size of everything a little, but that there would still exist stars and atoms. However, this turns out to be too naive a view. With a fine-tuning structure, constant to differ by roughly 1% from its actual value, then the structure of stars would be dramatically different. Indeed, there's every reason to suspect we would not be here to discuss the matter. Stephen Hawking, hard to get more prestigious than him, he says most of the fundamental constants in our theories appeared fine-tuned in the sense that if they were altered by only modest amounts, the universe would be qualitatively different and in many cases unsuitable for the development of life. You know, imagine you're exploring Mars and all of a sudden you come up over the horizon and you see what looks to be a very well-lit greenhouse. And you walk up to that greenhouse and you look inside and you see all of these living organisms. You see a family in there. They're, they're having Christmas. There's Christmas lights everywhere. There's little, they've made little... Gingerbread houses, there's a tree, there's, there's presents under the tree, they're watching a, a movie on television, and you're like, how is this family existing on Mars? And then you, you, you look, and you see there's a little control panel, and there's all these little dials, and every dial is tuned to exactly the right temperature, oxygen levels, CO2 levels, UV light, everything exactly the way it needs to be for life. And what physicists are telling us is what they found is not a greenhouse on Mars, but the entire universe. It's like there's a control panel and all the knobs are set to exactly the right values necessary for life. Hawking says, for example, if the other nuclear force, the weak force, were much weaker, in the early universe, all the hydrogen in the cosmos would have turned to helium, and hence, there would be no normal stars. Okay, so if all the hydrogen turns to helium, it doesn't just mean we live in a planet and we breathe helium and we talk really high. It means no life. If it were much stronger, exploding supernovas would not eject their outer envelopes and hence would fail to see the interstellar space with the heavy elements planets require to foster life. You guys know all this. <clears throat> If protons were 0.2% heavier, it wouldn't just be like our atoms would be a little bigger. No, they would decay into neutrons, which would destabilize the atoms. You need atoms for life, among other things. We're not for a series of startling coincidences, Hawking says. In the precise details of physical law, it seems humans and similar life forms 
would never have come into being. Hmm. What can we make of these coincidences? Our universe and its laws appear to have a design that is both tailor-made to support us and, if we're to exist, it leaves little room for alteration. You have no idea how little room. That is not easily explained and raises the natural question of, why is it that way? And we read in the book of Romans, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. There's a bunch. I'm not going to go through all these, but I've quoted from some of these books. You can see this is not, um, this is not just like some fringe you know, crackpot theory. This is the consensus. No one's doubting the data here on these. Let me just talk a little bit more, flesh a little bit more. How many examples are there of constants that are finely tuned? The mass of the neutron, finely tuned to one part in 700, according to these authors. If the neutron were 0.1% more massive, no heavy elements. If 0.1% less, only neutron stars or black holes. I'm going to hit you with a bunch of these, okay? I just want you to feel the, the quantity. Strong nuclear force tuned to 0.007, according to Martin Rees. Otherwise, no hydrogen from stars and, quote, we could not exist. The weak nuclear force, one part in 10 to the fourth. That means if it was off by one part in 10,000. What would happen? No supernova, which create heavy elements. What about Q, the uniformity of the cosmic microwave? This is not where, like, God microwaves his, his hunger man. <laughs> One part in ten to the fifth. If decrease, no stars or planets. If increase, no planets. In both cases, we lose our planets. <laughs> Ratio of electrons to protons. Finally tuned to one part in ten to the thirty-sixth. All right, these numbers are getting very small. No galaxies, stars, or planets, just extremely diffuse gas. In electromagnetism to gravity ratio, finally tuned to one part in 10 to the 37. If increased, no small stars. If decreased, no large stars. And uh, red giant stars produce the most amount of carbon and oxygen. What about gravity and the weak force? One part in 10 to the 50th. If larger, likely no galaxies. If smaller, the universe would collapse. What about omega, the mass density of the universe? One part in 10 to the 55th. If expansion were stronger, no galaxies or stars. If expansion were weaker, the universe would have collapsed. What about the cosmological constants? Is that lambda? One part in 10 to the 120th power. Impossible to wrap our minds around a number that small. But if larger, the universe would consist of hydrogen and helium soup. Not good for life either. I got a short video here with a couple different uh, very, very prestigious scientists talking about numbers, specifically the cosmological constant in the first couple of these. Let's uh, run this. All right, let, let's talk about one of them, though, that has some particular uh, uh, strangeness to it, the so-called cosmological yeah. constant. That's, that's right. That's the one which is really on the knife edge. Okay? It is on such a narrow knife edge that it's almost inconceivable if you were to change it just the tiniest, tiniest bit, we couldn't be here. 
This constant, whatever made the universe, I hate to say whoever you made the universe. This is just have a, a habit of talking in that language, whoever made the universe. They don't really mean it. But whoever made the universe made it with an incredibly small, tiny cosmological constant. It is so small that it is point zero 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 zero. We can sit here for a while. A hundred and twenty-three of them, and then a one, and then a one. I think it's actually a two. But it is incredibly small, and nobody really knows why. So if it were just a little bit bigger, just a little bit bigger than this point zero 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 zero. It would have prevented our existence. Physicists have never understood why it's so small. On the other hand, this cosmological constant is tuned to one part and ten to the one hundred and twenty, a hundred and twenty decimal places. Nobody thinks that's accidental. That is not a reasonable idea. That something is tuned to one hundred and twenty decimal places just by accident. So, in all of these cases, with the electron mass, with the proton mass, with the cosmological constant, which is vacuum energy, the only explanation that we have right now of these coupling constants is that if they would be much different, then our life would be impossible. It's certainly the case, and I think this is now uncontroversial, that if the laws of physics were very slightly different in in almost any way. Um, there could be no life in the universe, no complex chemistry, uh, and no thinking people, and therefore no one who knows the laws of nature. So they are somehow almost infinitely special in that they allow themselves to be, as you said, not just known but also used, and that uh, they were used before humans even existed to uh, create life, and then to, for the human species to evolve. But what we seem to find in the universe that we know is this and this. That is, it was very uniform, and with regard to the matter, okay, it was maximum entropy. But with regard to gravitation, it was very, very special. How special was it? You can actually work this out. It's so special that the odds against the special initial state coming about by chance are less than one part in ten to the power, ten to the power, one hundred and twenty-three. So. If you try to write this out one zero 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 with this number of zeros, you try to put one zero on every particle in the observable universe, you'd be way short. You'd never do it that way. That's not enough room to put all the zeros in. So I can do it by using two exponents. You see, but that's cheating if you like. So it's just I just want to give you some feeling for how special the initial state of the universe was. And for some reason, people. You know, they try and say, "Well, you don't want such and such a theory or so and so a theory because that requires fine tuning or something like that." Well, there's got to be fine tuning. This is fine tuning. This is incredible precision in the organization of the initial universe. Not a theist in that video. They're just saying where the evidence is, the current state of things. That last one, he was talking about the low entropy of the universe, one part in 10 million to the 123rd power, or 10 to the 10 to the 123rd. If you could put a zero on every particle in the universe, you still wouldn't have enough zeros. I like the other guy who said, you know, physicists have a habit of talking in terms of who created the universe, and you know, they, they don't really mean it. So anyway, whoever created the universe. <laughs> If that one's decreased, no stars or planets. If increased, no planets. 
And again, I just think about Romans 1. It says, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Let's take one of these, the gravitational constant. We're throwing all these 10 to the 10 to the whatever's around. You have to be like a, like a mathematician to even understand what they're talking about. The gravitational constant, one part in 10 to the 40th, shows up in this equation here. That's 10 to the 40th, 40 zeros. Let's think about what does it mean for something to be one part in 10 to the 40th? Let's think about winning the Mega Millions lottery jackpot. You know, is, are my odds there one in 10 to the 40th? Not even close. It's one in three times 10 to the eighth, 300 million. Okay, so we're so far from 10 to the 40th. Just to add another zero, you gotta multiply by 10. Just add another zero, you gotta multiply by 10 beyond that. What if, uh, what if we were just pick, picking a cell at random from your body? What would be the odds of picking the right one? How many cells in the human body? 37 trillion. We're so far away from one part in 10 to the 40th, just for one of these constants to be the right number. What about seconds the universe has existed? What if we just picked a second at random and got the right one? What would be the odds of that? Well, that's only one part in 10 to the 18th. We are so far, we're not halfway to 10 to the 40th. We're a tenth of the way to 10 to the 19th, which is a tenth of the way to 10 to the 20th. We're 10 to the 22 away times that number from 10 to the 40th. No, if you want to get close, here's what you need to do. One author, I believe Paul Davies, gives this example. He says, you need to take the continent of North America and you need to cover it with dimes, okay? So it might look like that. And I'm not just talking the United States. I'm talking like all the way down to the Panama Canal, all the way up to those parts of Canada that no one has ever even been to. We don't even know if they exist. <laughs> cover those with dimes too. Cover Greenland with dimes. And then, stack those up to the moon. And then do that on a billion other continents. By the way, the state of Texas less than a foot deep in dimes. That's our national debt. A billion other continents. And you still wouldn't have one part in 10 to the 40th. Mix in a red dime. And put them in your giant, you know, dime hopper, okay? And then crank this, your cosmic dime hopper, crank, crank this around and around and around, and then you just put on a blindfold and you dive in. And you're swimming around and you're doing the backstroke in there and you're shooting dimes out of your mouth. And <laughs> finally, you just, after swimming for years, you just grab one and you swim to the surface. And you say, ah, oh. the odds that you pick that red dime would be one part in 10 to the 37th. And we still have not even got the odds, the level of, of precision that this gravitational confident, constant needs to be fine-tuned to. And this is not the only one. Speed of expansion from the Big Ten, one in 10 to the 55. Strength of gravity, one part 10 to the 40. It just happens to be also correct for our world. We've got up to 50 lines. Every single one just happens to be exactly fine-tuned correctly for life and our universe as we know it.
How do we explain this? One is the anthropic principle. Sometimes you'll hear this referred to. The anthropic principle says, well, I mean, we're alive, right? So I guess we shouldn't be surprised that it worked out. You know, it's, it would be like, I mean, if it didn't work out, we wouldn't be around to be surprised by it. So therefore, you know, I mean, big deal. This is fortunate, I guess, for us. We hit the so-called cosmic jackpot. You know, this would be like, you know, you, you're, um, they arrest you and they say, you know what, you've been speeding too much, you've been downloading too many MP3s, we sense you to death by firing squad. And they march you out and they blindfold you and they stand you in front of a wall, but before they put the blindfold on, you look out and you see a hundred trained marksmen all standing at 20 paces away. They put the blindfold on. You stand there. They say, ready, aim, fire. And all of a sudden, you're shocked to discover that you're still alive. They pull the blindfold up. You look behind you. There's a perfect outline of your body, 100 bullets. Now, the reaction there is, should your reaction be, well... I guess I shouldn't be surprised that they all miss since I'm alive. Or would it be, I wonder why I'm alive. I wonder what happened there. You know, the fact that I'm alive is an observation. It's not an explanation of what happened. Or if you're in a poker game with your buddy and you're playing for 100 bucks a hand and he gets 10 royal flushes in a row which the odds against that are pretty low, although nowhere near any of these constants we're talking about. And, you know, you, you go to, to beat him up and to get your money back. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, you wouldn't even be trying to beat me up right now, you know, if I hadn't just gotten lucky those 10 times. You know, um, he's saying, look, I just got lucky. And that's why you're mad. This is not, again, it's not an explanation. It's an observation. One that you'll hear thrown around also is the multiverse, the multiverse. What is the multiverse? Paul Davies puts it this way in his book, Cosmic Jackpot. He says, the multiverse theory says that what we have all along been calling the universe is in fact nothing of the kind, uni, one. Rather, it is but an infinitesimal fragment of a much larger and more elaborate system, an ensemble of, quote, universes or of distinct cosmic regions. According to this theory, then, there are not one but many universes, all of which are invisible to us but our own. The number of universes in this theory generally goes into the trillions to virtually infinite. Because there are so many universes formed, sooner or later, one like ours would come about. To go back to the lottery example, yeah, it's pretty unlikely that you win the lottery unless you buy like 10 billion tickets. And then you shouldn't be surprised at all that you win the lottery. And so if the odds against our universe are basically nearly impossible, infinitesimal. But if we had like an infinite number of universes, then maybe we just happen to be in the right one. Maybe there are practically an infinite number of universes out there that we've never seen. And um, we basically, it's basically trying to buy more tickets to hit the jackpot because this is so unlikely. What are some problems with the multiverse? Well, one pretty obvious problem 
is the whole notion of alternate, parallel, non-life-supporting universes is completely unverifiable by scientific observation. Think about that. We've come up with a theory that's not observed, but calculated based on the incredible odds against life in our universe. We've got an undiscovered universe-generating mechanism that exists for no reason and with no cause. And we think that's, that's a good explanation? That's really what lies behind the multiverse. We need to understand that some people are like, well, evolution. Well, evolutionary theory cannot apply to the multiverse. Evolution only applies where you have organisms competing for resources and reproducing, and then as they reproduce, there might be genetic variances that give some sort of an advantage that eventually lead to dominance. Now, universes are not like making baby universes, fighting with other universes for a limited food supply. No, evolutionary theory just simply does not, cannot apply. All of these constants were in place long before there was life that could evolve. And finally, the multiverse only moves the fine-tuning problem up one step from the universe to the multiverse. If our universe is finely tuned, imagine the fine-tuning necessary for a multiverse to generate an infinite number of uni universes. There's got to be some sort of fine-tuning going on with that as well, only we can't observe the multiverse, and I guess never will be able to. I mean, it makes for a good plot for Spider-Man, having a multiverse. But when it comes to explaining this kind, of, this kind of remarkable coincidences we've been looking at tonight, I think we need to do better than that. I, I think about Romans 1, which says they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. There's something about us that doesn't want God to be there, that's scared of what will be the case if God is there. And so we come right up to the precipice, but we cannot quite make the final conclusion in the argument the data points to. A third one, a theory of everything. Martin Rees says, perhaps there are some connections between the numbers. Maybe they're not just random. Maybe, maybe, maybe we could calculate them at some point. But he says, at the moment, we cannot predict any one of them from the values of the others. Nor do we know whether some theory of everything will eventually yield a formula that interrelates them or specifies them uniquely. Yeah, I mean, maybe someday we'll come up with some sort of understanding that will explain all of this. But the question is, how much time do you have and how much evidence do you need? This is not infinite amount of time to make this decision. Your life is limited. At some point, you got to make a decision. I was recently, our car got totaled, and so I had to buy a new car. And I'm stingy and perfectionistic, which are not real good qualities for expediting the car shopping process. So, you know, I'm looking at cars, I'm checking Carfax, I'm taking them to mechanics, I'm taking them back, I'm looking at other ones, I'm expanding my search, I'm checking every car search engine in the known world. And finally, I was just like, this is taking too much time. I need a car. And I had to make a decision based on the evidence that I had available. And there comes a point with that when it comes to this decision that God is putting before you. He says, how much time do you really have and how much evidence do you need? This is also, 
It's not that God wants to take something from you, but God is offering you a free gift. How much evidence do you need to turn in your heart and at least to call out to God and tell him if you're there, I want to know you? Uh, there's a fourth explanation, and that's Romans 1, 18 through 20. That even though people suppress the truth in unrighteousness, that which is known about God is evident within you. God has made it known to you. And this is nothing new. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that you are without excuse. God loves you. He's reaching out to you. In fact, deep down you know this is true. Tonight, the heart of what I'm saying, I haven't told you anything new according to Romans chapter 1. God has already told you this. And perhaps some of the things we're saying have triggered some of those things that you've been trying to not think about, forget about. But that doesn't mean that God is any less real or any less there or that he loves you any less. He's still reaching out to you. He's still calling out to you. Because even though maybe you knew God was there, what you may not realize is this, that the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. This is what God clearly spells out in his word. That he loves you. That he wants a relationship with you. That that sense of guilt you feel, it's because you are guilty and you knew that already. But that he's provided another way. He's provided salvation. And it's so powerful that there's no one who's so stained with their own sin that they cannot receive this. There's no life that's so messed up that God cannot move in and change you. There's no one who's shaken their fist at God so many times that God is not powerful enough to overcome that with his love. He loves you. He wants a relationship with you. He's calling out to you. He's made himself known. He's made it evident within you. Why not turn to him tonight and get started on that journey of faith based on the evidence? Good. Well, let's pray. Yes, Lord, thanks that you haven't left us to uh, face the consequences of our decisions, but you have reached out to us time and time again. Thank you for how you've created the universe in a way that it, it makes sense and it reflects your character in that way. And thank you for this, this new information that's come to light over the last few decades that shows a level of care, a level of your divine, eternal power that we just didn't know was there before, Lord. Thank you that as science keeps making more discoveries, we keep understanding deeper and, and deeper the complexity of your wisdom and ultimately your love toward us. Thank you too, Lord, that you've made this evident within us. And I pray that this would, um, for anyone here who has not started a relationship with you, that they might at least call out to you tonight and ask you to give them the rest of the evidence that they need. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.